Hi, I'm Josh Shearer and I serve as the lead pastor here at Gawley Uniting Church. I wanted to personally thank you for joining us today. We exist as a church to see lives transformed with the good news of Jesus. Now, I hope this service inspires you. I hope it blesses you. I hope it builds your faith and I hope it gives you perspective that God is moving in your life. If there is anything that we can do to help you, don't be afraid to reach out on social media or email our office. Thanks for joining us again and let's get to the service. Now, as I begin this morning, I wanted to light a candle. And this candle is a part of, I'm hoping there's matches, if there isn't, hold that thought. This wreath is a part of an extraordinary tradition that we have as the the church. And it symbolizes, in a sense, the countdown that we have to Christmas, to declaring that moment in time on Christmas Day and Christmas Eve as well, actually, in our tradition, that um, Jesus has come, that we celebrate Emmanuel, God is with us. And each of the candles that we light mean a different or symbolize a different idea, a different expression of God in and through our lives. And so we're going to light the candle of love today. Slightly different order to perhaps what you would have in other years, because God really felt that I should highlight love for us today. So we light the candle of love acknowledging God's love for us, love we are called to live out in the world, which I'm about to share a whole lot about. Have you ever had one of those moments in time where you look around and you think, what on earth is going on? Anyone have a question like that? What on earth is going on? For you, that that might have been attending church for the first time. You sit here and you go, they're singing to no one and they're reading out of a book and he gets up and talks for half an hour. What on earth is going on? But that's not necessarily the case for most of us. But I had one of these moments of sitting there going, what on earth is going on? When I sat and reflected, I read some news earlier this week and was sitting through and thinking about the different pressures that are, are upon us as a people, as just a general society, what our culture is going through at the moment, one would call it, you could frame it as this cultural moment, is one that's full of anxiety and, and, and frustration and bitterness and in many ways hatred towards others that have a different opinion. We don't know what to do with that. Most of us were never taught to navigate difference particularly well. And so in this cultural moment, we find ourselves looking around at the way that people are disagreeing and treating one another and social media is not helping at all. And we're thinking, what is going on? What is going on? And I'm finding in conversations that I'm having as well, not just research and news articles and things like that, conversations I'm having with others where there's a sense of distrust, where there's a sense of of unkindness, of envy of another, of bitterness, of resentment, 
where all of those things are prevailing undertones because we've forgotten how to talk with one another in meaningful ways, in helpful ways. I wonder, can you relate to any of that lately? Have you seen it? Have you experienced it in some way? And it's left me with this question. It's a question I want to spend the rest of our time together talking about. And the question is, where is the love? Where is the love? Now, other than being a brilliant song by the Black Eyed Peas in the mid-2000s, for those of you that recognize that, it was not a bad song. I'm not singing it for you. Sorry, next time. You can Google that one in your own time. Where is the love? It was a great song. Quite culturally appropriate at the time, speaking into truth. And I think it is the question remains, where is the love? And you might have come here asking that very same question, related to the relationships that you've had, conversations that you've seen or know of, public rhetoric. And so what I want to do with our time this morning is I want to offer you a perspective that, as we will discover, has the power to help you and I recapture the love that seems to be so desperately needed at this time. A perspective that helps us to capture love within ourselves, but also a love that throws, flows through us into the world around us. Because as I mentioned earlier, we're beginning a series of Christmas called Boundless, reflecting on the extraordinary truth that we celebrate at this time of year about the birth of Jesus. Because take a moment and have a look at that picture. A boundless sky with God only knows how many stars, how many galaxies are represented in that space. And it's the best picture that we have of the infinite nature of God because space is truly the most infinite thing that we are aware of. A boundless sky contrast with a manger. And in it, a newborn baby. At Christmas, we celebrate an infinite God, powerful, majestic, that chose to limit God's self and enter the world as a baby, a baby boy, and his name was Jesus. A choice to be among us, an incredible gift that has the power to transform our world, to transform our town, to transform our lives. That's what Christmas is about. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, all of this feels very familiar. The story doesn't change. But I say this every single year, and I think it's true every single year, that no matter how many times we encounter the story of the birth of Christ, the Spirit within us has the ability to bring a new truth to our life. Why? Because you are not the same as you were the last time you read that story, even if you read it yesterday. Because there is a new truth yet to be revealed by His Word. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're visiting with us, if you're joining us online, I'm thrilled to have you. And my hope is that throughout this whole series, leading up to Christmas, that you will gain a perspective of what God has done for you in your life. Lost the page. Sorry, folks. 
Just last week, Eloise and I started um, uh, putting out the Christmas decorations. Anyone got the Christmas stuff up? Most people, some of you? No? I'm told that after the pageant, it's free game, right? That's what, that's what they say. After the Christmas pageant, once you've seen all of that happen on TV, you can get your Christmas decorations up. Others, others of you consider that heresy, and we consider that you can't put your Christmas decorations up until the 1st of December. Anyone in that? No, I'm not going to divide people. Where is the love? Come on. We're learning how to navigate tension in this space. Disagreements are okay. When we started putting up our Christmas stuff, it almost dawned on our daughters. Phoebe, slightly less so. She's much younger than Mackenzie. It dawned on them what was coming next. Because with Christmas decorations comes Christmas, and with Christmas comes presents. Yes, it does. And so for the girls, there became this fresh sense of anticipation of, oh my goodness, because they're the only grandkids on two sides of my family. <laughs> Think about what that means. The, uh, the op shop's getting a donation this, this year as we give away all the stuff we don't need. Anyway, there's an anticipation for those kids, and we see it in their eyes, and, and we, we understand it, and we, we share it in some ways, but for all of us, that anticipation isn't there for the same reasons, particularly for this Christmas. And I wonder, what is it that is building anticipation for you this Christmas? Is it the anticipating time with friends and family? Is it anticipating a robust meal? or three, or five, or one continuous one for three days straight. I don't know. Maybe that's what excites you about Christmas. Maybe you're anticipating the break. Maybe you're done with this year. You're tired. And you could just use some time out. And that's, maybe that's what you're anticipating this Christmas. If you're honest, Jesus has faded a bit, and just that annual leave on your calendar, that's where it's at the time at the caravan park. Maybe it's the Boxing Day sales. Seems a little far away to, to get to those Boxing Day sales, but they're a real thing. Maybe that's what excites you. Or maybe if you work in retail or you're a pastor, you're anticipating it being over. Because it's a lot of work, <laughs> I'll be honest. I love celebrating it, but it's a lot of work. And I used to work in retail, and I can relate to that idea that it is just so much to take on at Christmas time. But I think the most acute one that we experience in this season of the world at the moment, if we're honest, is the anticipation of being able to see loved ones again. Because this last week, we saw the borders of our state open, didn't we? From Tuesday. And so for the first time in over a year... Many of us have the opportunity to celebrate and to see loved ones for the first time in a very long time. To be face to face. To hug them, to kiss them. To just enjoy being in one another's presence. Maybe that's what you're anticipating this Christmas. And a passage of Scripture that I want to focus on today is part of the lectionary, if you're familiar with what that is, but it's not the primary gospel reading. I want to read from a letter. And in that letter, the writer of it, the Apostle Paul, shares that sense of anxiety. 
participation with us between himself and a new church community in an ancient city called Thessaloniki, or Thessalonica, as we often call it in English. And the Apostle Paul, if you're not familiar with him, was a Jewish leader in the first century, hated Christians, was trying to stamp out the church until he became one. Radical transformation, fascinating story. You should read it in Acts chapter 9. And after becoming a follower of Jesus, he began proclaiming the truth about Jesus as the Messiah as far as he could in the Mediterranean and in Asia and in parts of southern Europe. And he traveled around, and wherever he preached, people came to faith. Such was the anointing upon his life to bring the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. And everywhere that he went, he started new churches. He planted churches, faith communities. And so Thessaloniki was one of those places that he went. It was a Roman free city in Macedonia, in modern-day Greece. The city of Thessaloniki is actually still there, in the same spot. You can go and check it out in modern-day Greece. It still exists, and it was named after Alexander the Great's half-sister, just an interesting fact. But Thessaloniki was significant because it facilitated trade between one of the two significant cities of the Roman Empire in that part of the world, Rome, obviously, and Byzantium, which is is modern-day Turkey, so Istanbul. It was a very significant place, and we believe that Paul in his missionary journeys was super strategic. And so it makes absolute sense that he would choose a place like this or be led to a place like Thessaloniki to plant a church. But the thing about Thessaloniki was that it wasn't just a blank slate. And it wasn't just that there were, it was just Greeks or so Hellenists in that space. Because as part of that culture, there were a great deal of the population worshipping the gods of Egypt. And also worshipping the emperor as saviour and lord. It's called the cult of Rome. And so it wasn't clean sailing for that church. We read in Acts chapter 17 when Paul goes to plant the church, he begins proclaiming it and all that sort of stuff. He and Silas, a friend of his, begin to preach and they see people come to faith and it's all going really well and then someone starts to pay attention that's in authority and starts to notice that he's proclaiming a Messiah other than Caesar. And if we're real, all hell breaks loose. There's riots There's people flipping tables, I'm sure of it, turning down buildings, looting, stealing flat screen TVs, the whole lot, everything. The place is in an uproar. And declaring anyone other than Caesar as Lord at that time was dangerous, politically. And so Paul and Silas need to flee the city. They plant this church and then they have to go for the the sake of their lives. They get smuggled out in darkness one night. You read all about that in Acts chapter 17. And so here we have a brand new church, brand new pastor, and then he's on. He has to move. He has to leave. What a great start. How would you go as a local church if week two of your new church, this is the gathering, week two, I'm gone. Just gone. And you find out, where did Josh go? I had to go because there was a riot down the street and they were going to kill him. How would, we, how would we go as a church? What would we do? I don't know. But that's the situation the Thessalonians found themselves in. 
And so you can imagine Paul's excitement because the last he heard of them was they were in trouble. So you can imagine his excitement when Paul sends one of the young men that he was mentoring by the name of Timothy to check on the church. And he discovers that it is still going and better than just going, it is thriving. They're kicking goals, friends. They're making significant impact for the gospel. And we pick up Paul's letter here in in 1 Thessalonians 3, starting in verse 6, if you're following along. It'll be on the screen as well. Thanks, Mark. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and about your love. He's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. And it was a faith in the midst of a tumultuous culture where Christianity was not the primary worldview. For now, we really live... We're excited to live since you are standing firm in the Lord. In a sense, we succeeded, Paul is saying. Something happened. God is working. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day, we pray earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. I'm sure in the time he was there, he didn't have a chance to teach them everything. And the rest of the letter shares that that is true. There's other things he wants to sort of critique and adjust about their theology. But you can, you can feel the anticipation in this moment, can't you? In the tone of the passage, just the thought of him being able to be face-to-face with them, to meet with them, to fellowship with them. The chaos and the challenges that the church was facing... And reading the rest of the letter, there was a lot of them, even from within. In the midst of that, Paul prays something in this next section of the passage. And it's called what scholars call a wish prayer. Have you ever wished for anything? You ever cut a cake? Wished for something? A bit of a a tradition around all of that? And these scholars call what Paul writes next a wish prayer. Because it's lofty. It's idealistic, and it's ultimately what if, in a sense, it's if I could have anything, if I could pray for anything for you, Thessalonian church, I would pray for this, is what Paul is writing. And he says, he writes this, now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus May He clear the way for us to come to you. I wish that. But may the Lord also make your love increase. And our word for love there is agape. May the Lord make your agape increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. That is those outside the community of faith. Just as our love does for you. May, that is the Lord, strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. 
Paul prays for three things over this Thessalonian church. Does he pray for protection amidst persecution? No. Does he pray for provision? Because I'm sure that they were not a wealthy church. Did he pray for some money just to help things, you know? No. He prayed for presence. He prayed for love to abound. And he prayed that they would experience and live out the holiness of God. That's what he prayed for. If he could pray for anything, this is what he prayed for. Hope. Presence is a powerful communicator of hope. I was reminded this week, I went to sit with two members of our congregation. One of them is in hospital and and quite unwell. And I had the privilege, and something we do from time to time, as pastors, we get to sit with people in the toughest times of their life. And many of you would experience that as just fellow Christians. Something about being present with somebody as they are going through the valley of the shadow of death, whether it's death or just a shadow, there's something about it that there's nothing that you or I can say which actually helps. Have you ever encountered that? Have you ever been on the receiving end of that? Where someone comes, as well-meaning as they are, and they sit next to you while you're suffering and say, it's okay, everything happens for a reason. And you want to punch them in the face. A five-finger ministry gift of admonishment. Why? Because we don't What we need is presence. What we need is people to be near to us. What we need is presence of people in those moments amid suffering and sickness and pain. It is presence that offers comfort and hope. Emotionally, we can endure, and the studies are really clear on this. Emotionally, we can endure just about anything except hopelessness. We have the ability to endure just about anything except the complete and utter absence of hope in our life. And so Paul offers or prays for presence in their life to bring hope. But then he he prays that they would be blameless before others and that they would have a holiness before God. Now notice he uses two different words here with two different meanings. Holiness is what he prays for in terms of their state before God. He wants them to be set apart. He wants them to be dedicated to God. He wants their lives to be completely oriented towards what God would have them do in their life. And I think that's a wonderful prayer for all of us. He wants them to be pure in God's sight. And friends, we know there's only one way that's achieved. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ. So he prays that their faith would be strengthened. But then he also prays that they would be blameless. And that's not talking about God. That's talking about being blameless before others, before people. That they would be beyond, literally, the term means beyond fault before others, to be beyond reproach. And how is it possible to live in such a way? That you and I, as followers of Jesus, that the first century church could live in such a way that you would not be at fault with others. How do we do that? And he gives us the answer with his third prayer for the church. 
He says, I pray that you would abound in, what is it? Love. Abound in love. Agape is the word. Or agape, or agape, if you want to pronounce it that way. And the word literally means boundless. Boundless in expression. Boundless in condition. Boundless love. Love. How helpful. Thanks, Paul. Good to know. Because we can love all sorts of things. How does that help? I love my car. I love my bike. I love my kids. That's kind of helpful. Definitely love my wife. But I also love pizza and Christmas pudding. Oh, I love my Xbox too. I do love these new chairs. They look great, by the way, and you look great sitting in them. And they're comfortable. I love how comfortable they are. So how does this term love help us? Because love can be anything. We feel love about all sorts of things. But the thing we discover as we look deeper is that this is not just merely a feelings type of love. This is an active, choice-driven sort of love. An affection towards others. And Paul writes comprehensively about what he means by us living out love in a very famous passage. One I, I preached about yesterday at a wedding that I had right here to celebrate a marriage with, between two beautiful people. From 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You all know it well, I'm sure. He reflects on this idea of love and living it out. And he says, so if I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but I don't have love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, if I, if I can fathom all mysteries and if I have all the knowledge in the world, but if I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I have faith to move mountains, but I don't have love, I've got nothing. If I give everything I have to the poor, give over my body to hardship and suffering, but if I don't have love, then I have nothing. He goes on, verse 4, he says, love is patient, love is kind. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it is not proud. It doesn't dishonor others, it's not self-seeking. It isn't easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And say it with me, love never fails. Love never fails. So if you're going to do anything, you've got to do it with love. There's a pretty famous um, song in the movie called Love Actually, that everyone seems to watch at Christmas. All you need is love. Maybe they got that from here. All you need is love. Because love never fails. Paul describes in a bunch of ways what love isn't. But the thing about love is that it's, particularly this practical stuff, it's a lot harder to describe what it is. But we read on and we discover, actually discovered this term during one of our life groups just a couple of weeks ago. I've never thought about it like this. But what does it mean to love, practically? To live a life of love is to live a life of active kindness. 
That's it. To live a life of love, friends, is to live a life of active kindness. Doing something that benefits the other. Doesn't matter if it's words, doesn't matter if it's actions or deeds, it doesn't even matter if it's an attitude shift. An act of kindness for the other is what love looks like in the world. And the thing about these acts of kindness, the thing about love in action is very rarely are these actions big things. Almost always, in my experience, it's the little things. It's the small moments, the small acts of kindness, the small adjustments in attitude, the small words of encouragement. It's those acts of kindness that make a difference in people's lives. The ones they weren't expecting, the ones that just shine a light in a moment in time. Friends, that's what love looks like in the world. But it's the small things that end up making the biggest difference. And Jesus had a great deal to say about love as well, particularly who we should love. We know about the parable of the Good Samaritan. When someone asks him, who's my neighbor, who should I love? And he tells a story about loving the least, loving those that aren't, loving those that aren't like us, loving our enemies, people that we rampantly disagree with, loving anyone that we come across. Friends, we're called to a boundless love, a love without qualification. And in John 13, 35, Jesus tells us that we will be known as his disciples by the way that we give, by the way that we argue, by the way that we love. That's how we will be known. For some reason, and Jesus knew it, for some reason, love was going to be what defines us as different to the world around us. Because there'll be something different about the way that we love as followers of Jesus that will be so different to the world around us, that it will be truly magnetic and we will be known. And friends, I wonder if we are in that cultural moment where amid a world that is struggling to figure out how to even be nice to one another, struggling to figure out how to navigate complexity, we will be known by the way that we love. But there's one other thing I wanted to say. John writes it in 1 John 4 verse 19. He says, we love because God first loved us. Friends, our capacity to love, our ability to show active kindness to others is only possible in meaningful and sustaining ways if we discover that truth in our hearts that it was God that first loved us. Love began with God with the greatest act of love. That act was a small thing. A baby lying in a manger. 
that made all the difference the world will ever know. Nothing fancy, nothing extravagant, but something profoundly significant. Because that baby called Jesus would grow up and show the world what God is like, to teach the world what God values, but then ultimately give his life for the world as a free gift of grace, something, an act of love so small, yet so significant. An act of boundless love, an act of boundless love without compare. So I began by asking you the question, where is the love? Where is the love, folks? It's in you. It's in me. That's where it is. That's where it's always been. And so my invitation to you is, where are you going to live this out? Because I don't need to give you 500 applications of what active kindness looks like. You already know. You already know. But our ability to love is, comes from the gift of grace given to us by God. A gift of love from God for a world around us that desperately needs it at this time. So like a child in a manger, it's not a big thing. It's not extravagant, but it is boundless. Would you pray with me, church? Loving God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it speaks into our hearts. And Lord, this idea of love, it's, it's nebulous. It's, it's hard to define. But Lord, we don't need to define it to be able to live it. We don't need to understand all of it to accept it. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us as your followers to get this right. Help us to have the courage to do acts of kindness in the places that you prompt us, in the places where we, you are calling us to be People of love in a world desperately needs it. I also want to pray this morning for those that don't recognize your love. And there might even be people here this morning or people that are joining us online where I'm talking about love and I'm talking about the love of God and you have no concept of that. You've never experienced it. You've never known what it is to be truly loved by anything or anyone. And you might even be joining us here today because of that reason. And so this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to accept that love for the first time. A love that is boundless, a love that is beyond measure, a love that was given for you that's got nothing to do with how good you are and everything to do with how loving and gracious our Heavenly Father is. And it's made available to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And all we need to do is believe. 
I invite you, if that is you this morning, I'd invite you to just join me in prayer. Loving God, we give our hearts to you afresh. We trust you. We want to know what it means to experience your love in rich and wonderful ways. Thank you for giving your life for us on the cross. Would you take our life because you gave yours. For that we are thankful. In Jesus' name we pray. as we sing our final song.